Amen. How's everybody doing? How about that worship leader, huh? Man. <laughs> so, you know, we have a, a team that went to Costa Rica on a mission trip, uh, about 10 people. My wife, one of them, our pastor, one of them, uh, the guy that normally preaches. And so he, they get to the, they, they fly in from San Juan into Newark, New Jersey last night, and they, or yesterday, and they've got a five-hour layover, and so they're just sitting in the airport waiting for their next flight. And then they start to see one by one all these flights start starting to get canceled. And so my wife texts me, and she says, uh-oh, it's looking like we, our flight may get delayed. And so it got delayed a few times. So there was a little bit of back and forth. And come to find out, the flight just got canceled weather. And so every, you know, every aspiring pastor or preacher um, gets the text message last night at 1030 that you don't ever want to get. Listen, I'm not going to be there. I need you to preach tomorrow. And so I'm here to preach. Um, I'm not preaching in Mark. Um, so that, I, that's not where the Lord had me. Um, and so um, I'm going to be bringing a word to you guys today uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 14 through 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 20. In, in the Pew Bible, if you've, if you've got one of these that's under the chair in front of you, you can use that. Um, listen, if you don't have a Bible, take that home with you, Okay. If you don't have one, t- just take it out. Nobody's going to tackle you when you walk out, all right? This is yours, okay? This is our gift to you. Um, but if you're using this Bible, we're going to be on page 966. So if you're using that Bible, it's 966. If you're not using that Bible, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 20. So open your Bibles or turn on your Bible or whatever it is and uh, get there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 20. And I'm going to pray for us while we turn there. Lord, we are about to hear your word. And if, if you don't send your spirit, Holy Spirit, if you don't come, and if you don't open our eyes, if you don't open our ears, if you don't soften our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us today, then all of this is in vain. God, I pray that there's not a single person in this room that leaves here indifferent. I pray that there's not a single person in this room that that is going to sit under the preaching of your holy word and walk out of here the same person. God, we expect and we are inviting you to come and to do a work that only you can do. God, would we leave here and never be the same? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through 20. Now, a little bit of introductory matters here. The church as we know it, has a, is in a dilemma. We've, we've got a problem. We've got a, a very, very serious problem. Um, so as you know, we're part of the Southern Baptist Convention, the SBC, right? That's our, that's our denomination, if you will. Um, the, the, what this church is is an SBC church, a Southern Baptist church. So the numbers, okay, for the Southern Baptist church are, they're not looking good, okay? I wish I could had better news for you, but I don't. They're not looking good. The SBC has lost almost... 78,000 members over the last year, and we've lost over a million members since 2003. Okay, we're shrinking. This past year has seen the lowest baptisms in the SBC since 1946, the lowest church membership since 1990, and the lowest worship attendance since 1996. And that's just in the SBC. 
here in America. Now, the overall church, I mean, if you count just the church period, the, the Methodists and the Presbyterians and every other denomination, if you count the, the Protestant church, evangelical church in America, the numbers are far more disturbing, far worse. Over the last 10 years, the number of professing Christians in America has declined by 10%, while the number of religiously unaffiliated, or as you've probably heard them refer to as the nuns, has increased as well as the number of those who identify with non-Christian faiths. The Muslim faith is the fastest growing faith in the world right now. Lifeway research has shown that every year in America, approximately seven to 9,000 churches, listen to that number, seven to 9,000 churches close their doors every year. And they're projecting that probably by the end of 2019, over 10,000 churches will have completely shut down and closed their doors in America this year. So what that means is that if we're going to even just maintain the number of churches that are in America, we have to plant 10,000 churches a year. And that's just to maintain our current numbers. But church planting itself is also in a state of crisis. Kevin Ezell, who's the president of the North American Mission Board, um, that's the domestic church planning arm of the SBC. The North American Mission Board is responsible um, for evangelizing and planning churches in North America. Okay? He said this, and he said it at the convention that we were at just a few weeks ago in Birmingham, and, and I've heard him say this for a few years now. He said, look, the, the biggest obstacle that we have to planning churches is not money. We have all the money in the world that we need. We have more money than we need. Tomorrow, if we wanted to, we could plant 500 churches. Tomorrow, if we wanted to. The problem that we are facing, the, where the bottleneck is, is not money. It's not resources. It's qualified church planters. We don't have anybody that wants to do this. And the people that want to are not qualified. They're not capable. They're not able to do this. So, Thinking about that, they don't have a lack of money. They have a lack of church planters. Now, Southern Baptists claim to have 16 million members in our convention, in our denomination, uh, spread across 42,000-plus churches in North America. And we have a problem finding 500 church planters. The money is there. The people that are willing to go are not. That's the issue, and that's a problem, and one of the biggest indicators that this is a problem is if you heard me talk about all of that, and you thought, hmm, somebody needs to do something about that. Not me, though. I'm not called to that. That's the biggest indication that this is an active problem right now, even in our church. If you sat through all of that and thought, wow, man, yeah, listen, I understand, like, the church needs to, needs to do something. I understand that the church needs to do the Great Commission. I understand that the church needs to plant churches corporately. As a, as a denomination, we need to do this, yes. As a church, we need to do this, yes. But me, that's just not my call. That's not my thing. That's not my thing. Listen, you're being fooled, and you're being deceived. Because the Great Commission is not just something for the church corporate to do, it's what I want to show you today is that it's something individually for you to do, to be a part of. So look at our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 20. Starting in verse 14, for the love of 
Christ controls us, or your translation may say compels us, or or it may say moves us. It's the idea that the love of Christ is what is driving me, is what Paul is saying. The love of of, of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. Who's that? Jesus, and he died for all so that those who live, who's that? Us, those who profess faith in Christ. We have been regenerated. We've been brought from death to life. We've been made alive in Christ so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So from now on, therefore, We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So, What is this saying? In the Corinthian church, Paul's um, credibility was being challenged. The church was kind of doubting his his apostleship, right? They were doubting his ability to teach, and they were doubting his credentials. And so they were doubting his authority as a missionary, as a teacher, and and so Paul spends some time defending his, uh, his authority and his right to be an apostle. And some were saying that he was even crazy. And right before this, he says, listen, if we're out of our mind, it's, it's, it's for God. You know, if, but if we're in our right mind, it's for you. Some were saying that he was crazy, crazy. But at the end of the day, essentially what he says is, look, you know what? I don't care what you think. It's not reputation or status or what you think about me that compels me. It is love that compels me to do what I do. It's the love of Christ that compels us because we've concluded that he has died for all. Therefore, all have died. The Corinthian church, in other words, could not take away from Paul the love of Christ in his life. Therefore, they couldn't take away his purpose and his fuel for engaging in the mission of the gospel. So what prevents us from doing this? We all know that Christ loves us, don't we? If it's, if it's love that moves us, if it's love that compels us, if it's love that controls us, if it's love that controls Paul, that compelled him to be able to go out and to share the gospel message, then what is it that compels us? Well, it's the same thing. It's love. We're, you know, we're not primarily rational people. We do things that are pretty silly all the time. We do things that are illogical. So it's not logic and reason that primarily drive us. We don't always make rational decisions. It's not even our faith that is the primary thing that orients us to the world. It's not our faith that, that influences every single decision that we make, because we sin every single day, don't we? Yet we believe in, in, in our, the deepest parts of ourselves that that is wrong. No, what, what, what drives us is what we love. We are primarily lovers. We're primarily loving beings. 
that at the end of the day, if you, t- if you at the end of this day today, look back over this day and you take stock of every single thing that you did, or you look back over your week or your month or whatever, you take stock of every single thing that you did, and what you will find is this really um, disturbing pattern, this recurring theme of everything that I'm doing, I'm doing for me, because I love myself more than anybody else. It is self-love that is that is pushing us, that is controlling us. We aren't engaging in this because our love is disordered. We've bought into the culture's lie that the only significant life worth living is one that is dedicated to pursuing what we feel makes us happy and fulfilled. That's what we've done. We've been more influenced by the outside culture than we have the scriptures. Now listen, every single human being has questions that they want answered. Every single human being, from no, no matter what culture you're in, anybody who's alive that has a capacity for thinking, whether you realize it or not, there's, there are some questions there are some, that you want answers to. This is Worldview 101, okay? And, and every single one of us, no matter where you're from, no matter what your upbringing is, where it seems to be that we're searching for the answers to these questions. What is the point of everything? Why am I here? Why are we here? What does the good life look like? What will make me happy? These are questions that all of us wrestle with and struggle with, and we're always trying to find the answer to. And our culture around us answers these questions by painting these alluring images of what self-fulfillment looks like. Fame, riches, status. And without even realizing it, we try to conform our lives to those stories. The world has tried to convince us that our purpose is to make much of ourselves as possible and to drink as much of what the world has to give us as possible. But you see, that's not how purpose works. That is literally the the opposite of what purpose even means. This is the definition of the word purpose. The reason for which something is done or created, the intention for which something exists, Do you see how the idea of purpose necessarily entails that it exists outside of you? That you were created for something. There was an intention for you that's outside of you. For example, take a hammer or a screwdriver or a computer or whatever. Those things are created to serve something greater than themselves. They don't serve themselves. They're meant to serve something greater, us. We are greater than hammers and screwdrivers and computers. This pulpit is not meant to serve itself. It's not meant to make much of itself. It's meant to serve me and hold my stuff here as I'm trying to preach to you. It's meant to serve something greater, right? That's what purpose means. And by turning our purpose in on ourselves, what we've actually done is we've created something destructive out of something that is meant to give us life and inspire us. And listen, the world knows that this doesn't work too. They know this, and we know this. No matter how many testimonies we hear from those who have obtained everything that the world tells them would satisfy them, if they still feel unfulfilled, we keep buying the lie, and we keep chasing it, and we keep pursuing it. Because our hearts are not in this. Jim Carrey said, I wish that everybody could become rich and famous so that they could see that it doesn't solve any of their problems. And Tom Brady, who was the quarterback for the New England Patriots, he won three Super Bowls before age 30. Okay, Now, I'm going to be 30 this year, and I can't even close all the rings on my Apple Watch every day. Three Super Bowls before the age of 30. 
He set a record for the most, t- most touchdown passes in a season. He won the MVP award. He made millions of dollars, achieved worldwide fame. And here's what Tom Brady said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it's all about. I mean, I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think there's got to be more than this. I mean, this, isn't, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. There are countless other testimonies like this. The world perpetuates this myth that if we define our own version of success and happiness and then we pursue that goal, then we will be happy. But that's exactly what it is. It's a myth. It's a lie. Because those who have chased and obtained that dream have reached out and grabbed it and have realized that they were snatching for nothing but smoke. But notice exactly what the scripture says that Jesus died to save us from. Look at verse 15. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, what Jesus set you free from was you. Believe it or not, you are your own worst enemy. And believe it or not, You look at the culture now. You look at your life now. We are loving ourselves to death. Jesus, though, has provided a way for you to shift your purpose from yourself, which is self-destructive, to him, which is self-fulfilling. He has provided a way for you to make yourself a means to an end rather than the end in itself. And it's through this, he says, that you will find life. Whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it, Jesus says. Notice that Jesus has set the example for us. It says in verse 15, it was for their sake. That's our sake, right? Those who live. It was for us. It was for their sake that Jesus died and was raised. Listen, Jesus Christ made himself a means to an end. He did not make himself the end. Jesus realized that his purpose was not to make much of himself, but to spend himself for the sake of others. And it's that example that Paul calls upon, tells us that we should mimic in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He says, have this mind amongst yourselves, this selflessness, okay, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not consider that status, that equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself. And he took on the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, lower still, to the point of death, even the death of a cross. You see, we are only following the example of Jesus whenever we deny ourselves and live for something else. If you are a follower of Jesus in this room, then what I'm asking you to do with your life is exactly what Jesus did with his. Jesus became a servant. He became a slave, which means that by definition, Jesus committed his life to the service of something outside of himself because he understood that a life lived for yourself is no life at all whatsoever. Jesus Christ, the God-man who came down from heaven, who was reigning in glory, who stepped out of heaven and walked on earth, he looked at his disciples, and in John eight fifty four, he said this. He said, if I, if God, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. The God-man. If I glorify myself, John 8.54, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. If that is true of Jesus, then how much more true is it for us? 
If we spend our lives making much of ourselves, then we will ultimately find that our lives were spent for a cause that no matter how sincerely we may have felt about it, it produced absolutely nothing. Andy Stanley puts it this way. He says, those who devote themselves to themselves will only have themselves to show for themselves. But those who devote themselves to more than themselves will have more than themselves to show for themselves. It reminds me of uh, the, the parable of the rich fool. I think it's in Luke or Matthew or one of the gospels somewhere. I don't know. Um, but the parable of the rich fool, the, the, the man who has all these possessions, and he, and he stores up all this stuff, and he keeps it in his barns, and he goes out one day, and he's looked, he looks at his barns, and he says, wow, those barns are not big enough. I'm just going to tear these down. I'm going to build bigger barns, and I'm going to put all my stuff in there, and, and I'm going to tell my soul, soul, be merry, eat, drink, and be happy, and just be merry. And that's how I'm just going to live my life, just keeping all my stuff in my big barns, and I'm just going to be merry, eat, drink, and everything this world has to offer. And then God comes to him, and he says, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And all of this that you've done, all of this that you've earned, all of this that you've worked so hard for, that you've given your life for, all of these positions, whose will they be? They're not going to be yours. Paul, his spin on this is this. He tells the church at Thessalonica, it's beautiful. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19, he says the same thing to the church at, at Philippi. Uh, again, I'm not sure where. I don't know my Bible like I should, but 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul puts it to us this way. He says, what is our crown? He's talking to the church, okay? So Paul went to Thessalonica, planted a church. He shared the gospel, won people to the Lord, okay? Started a church, and he's writing this church letter, and, and he says to this church, what is our crown of boasting before the Lord when he returns? Is it not you? That's what Paul says. It's beautiful. What Paul is saying is that, listen, when Jesus comes back, the only thing that's going to matter is who I brought with me. That's it. That's going to be the only thing that I can boast in. What is our crown of boasting before the Lord? Is it not you? So th there, are, there are many ways that this, this self-indulgence, this selfishness, this self-love overrides us and drives us and it just distorts us. It just destroys us. It just destroys our lives. There are many ways that this plays itself out in our life. It's the reason why you work 80 hours a week and you ignore your family. Um, it's the reason why you give yourself over to habits and addictions that you know are not good for you. Um, it, 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 is, it is the reason why um, you, you don't take care of your body like you should. It's the reason why you don't take care of your family or your loved ones like you should. It's because it's self-love. But there is one specific avenue. I, I thought about kind of, you know, taking a few of these and, and breaking them down. But there's one specific area uh, that, that, I, that I really want to hone in on. Um, because I believe that, that, that this, what I'm about to talk about, has done more damage, not only just in, in the, the, the church, especially the church, but just in the world at large, and people need to be made aware of it, this is probably the number one threat that is, that is making us so apathetic um, right now in our lives. And it's something that affects every single one of us, whether you've personally dealt with it or you know somebody who has. It's the one thing that I was thinking, you know what, I bet this one topic probably will mean something to 99% of the people in the room. Either you've been affected by this or you know somebody who has or you're currently involved in it right now, and that's the issue of pornography. Do you know why... You watch pornography? 
It's because you don't have big enough dreams. You know, I had considered saying it's because you don't have a dream. But that's just not true. Because the more I thought about it, the more I realized that everybody has a dream of some sort. I mean, we are ambitious people. We were made to create and cultivate and rule over this earth in a way that is good for us and glorifies God. It's, it's, it's hardwired into us. We have ambitions. We have dreams. We have desires, right? This requires that we all have a desire to make an impact, a desire to work hard and achieve incredible feats for the kingdom of God, although that's been distorted. So no, it's not that you you don't have a dream is that you do have a dream but and you've just given up on it and you've traded it for a destructive myth pornography has been proven to alter your brain in ways similar to drug addiction and alcoholism affecting the prefrontal lobes of your brain in such a way that it will actually rob you of your willpower to do anything else other than to get your next fix This has had tragic consequences on individuals and families plagued by the false allure of pornography as countless people have traded in their dreams to live in an unrealistic fantasy land of lust. Men have more of a desire for a woman they will never be able to touch than the one that they married laying in the next room. Women have considered the embrace of their own husbands as inadequate. And they have convinced themselves that what they need to be wrapped in is the bigger biceps that they see on the screen. College students would rather scroll through explicit pages of of the internet and videos rather than the pages of the school books. Young boys consider themselves men based upon what they have seen with their eyes, and they toss away their youth by trying to grow up way too fast. And young girls feel that they don't measure up to what a true woman really is, and so they grow up striving to meet these impossible expectations of what they think they should look like and what they think that they should do. And all of these distractions have kept us so preoccupied with ourselves and our image and our libidos that we have no energy to contribute to our dreams whatsoever. Where our heads were once in the clouds, we have plunged them straight into the muck. This would change if you began dreaming again. It would. What you need to defeat this temptation and to reclaim pornography's hold on your ambitions and your desires is to latch onto a cause that is greater than yourself and to give all of yourself to it. At first, it, it, that, that pursuit will take time, and it, and it will rob you of no time for pornography. You're, you're concerned about much more important matters. You've got to be convinced of this. And after a bit of time, your desire for pornography will diminish. You will make progress towards your dreams, and you will see the joy that you have been, what you have been working towards is right beyond the horizon, getting closer, and you will no longer be satisfied with the pseudo-romantic flights of fancy that will never come to fruition. You've tasted the sweetness of actual progress, and the reality of the hopelessness of pornography sets in, making you more determined to deny its temptations and to press on to something that you will actually be able to achieve. Because listen, pornography offers only a temporary satisfaction. But Psalm 1611 says that eternal pleasures are in the right hand of the Father. Pornography offers an excitement and a thrill, but only one word from the Lord can set your heart ablaze. That's Luke 24, 32. Pornography offers only a window into a world which you will never be able to experience, but Christ has torn the veil that separates you from the true reality. 
That's 2 Corinthians 3.16. Pornography offers a temporary rush, but it refuses you intimacy and lasting fulfillment. However, the promise of Psalm 84.11 says that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Pornography is such a lousy, lousy substitute for what God has made available to us. We're natural-born dreamers. We're destined to do great works for the kingdom of God. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says. But it's when we lose sight of that purpose and we exchange walking in the light for sitting in the dim glow of a computer screen that our life, our time, our energy, resources, ambitions, hopes, and dreams are all completely wasted. We were meant for so much more than this. The cause of Christ is worth so much more than this for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of your spouse, your children, your church, your friends, your coworkers, for the sake of the world. Repent of this. Leave it behind and dream bigger. Dream big. <coughs> Repent of the self-destructive sin of living for yourself and embrace the life-giving purpose of living for Jesus. Look back again. As the scripture, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for them, for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What Paul is saying here is that we are rejecting the world's standards. We're not going to try to measure up to them. We're not going to judge anybody according to the flesh. We're not going to, you know, regard anything or anyone according to the flesh. We're rejecting the world standards. We no longer have any regard for the ways of the world, the ways of the flesh. Instead, Paul says, we turn to Christ. And then he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And with that new comes a new heart, a new heart that has new desires, a new, de- new desires that produce new loves within you, that produce new goals, new dreams, new avenues for you to pursue a whole new life. You're set free. So I'm urging you now to do away with the old. Do away with it. Make a convicted decision right now that you are not going to settle for less, that you're not going to settle for the status quo. There is no life in making much of your own life. You do not need to be made much of. You need to be made new. Your selfish ambitions are enslaving you and Christ will free you from yourself if you give him yourself. You will be a new creation, no longer bound by the incessant need to feed your selfish heart. Does that resonate with you? I say that term, selfish heart, and man, that resonates with me. Because I look back over my life and I, I see so much of my life that was wasted because of my selfish heart. But there's another promise to us given, us given to us in 1 Timothy. Paul says the aim of our charge, Timothy, what we preach about, the, what we are hoping to see, the change that we are trying to bring about in people through our preaching and our teaching is love that issues from a pure heart, a clean conscience, and a sincere faith. It's possible. You can have a pure heart. You can have a clean conscience. And you can have a sincere faith. It may seem beyond reach, but listen, dream big. You can get it. 
after you repent and you embrace Jesus, what you need to do is you need to step into the mission that he has called you into. That's the great commission. Look at what it says. All this is from God. This saving work that we just talked about. All of that is from God. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, that's the church, those whom he saves, those whom he makes new creations, every single one of us individually, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You see, this is the purpose of your salvation. This is the reason for you being made a new creation. You weren't saved for the sake of yourself. You were saved for the sake of others. The gospel came to you because it's heading to somebody else. That's why the gospel came to you. It's because you were never intended to keep it to yourself. The best way for you to protect the gospel is to give it away, to share it. That's why it came to you. It's entrusted to you to preserve it, to keep it. And the way that you do that is you give it away. That's why you were saved. Now, if you're going to do this, if you're going to be part of this mission, if you're going to step into the Great Commission, if you're going to look at those numbers and, um, and say, hey, you know what, I need to do something about I need to do something about that. If you're going to do that, then what you need is a vision to latch on to. That's what you need. You need to catch a glimpse of something so great that you don't want to give yourself to anything else other than this. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, he was a French aviator and, and a writer, he said this. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. I love that. See, what Antoine understood is that when a man longs for the sea, there's no lack of knowledge or ability or skill that's going to keep him landbound for long. He will find a way to sail. And the same is true for us. If we are going to fulfill our mission, if you are going to fulfill your mission, what God has called you to, if you're not going to ignore it any longer, if you're going to step into the purpose that God created you for, then you don't need to be told what to do. You need to be shown something great that will entice you to do whatever it takes to achieve it. Now, I believe that if you survey the, the Bible, that you will see that this is mostly how God motivated his people throughout history to do the great things that he called them to do. Look at Abraham. He called Abraham, and he told Abraham, he, said, he gave him a promise. He said this, I have made you the father of many nations. Abraham was like 100 years old. And this is before a child was born. He said, I have made you a father of many nations. He gave Abraham an image. The number of your descendants will number the st like the stars in the sky. He gave him a, something to latch on to. He gave him a hope. He gave him something that allowed him to persevere. He gave them something to pursue. Moses, before, whenever the, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, and God meets Moses at the burning bush on Mount, at the bottom of Mount Oreb, God gives Moses a promise. Before he ever led them out of, out of Egypt, before he ever crossed the Red Sea, before the plagues or anything, before any of that ever happened, God told Moses this. He said, Moses, this will be the sign for you that after you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship me on this mountain. After all of this, you're going to worship me on this mountain. He gave Moses a picture of something incredible. Him and his kinsmen worshiping God together in that same place. 
that he is seeing God in all of his glory right now. He's going to be able to bring others along with him. And even Jesus Christ himself, the author of the book of Hebrews, tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. There was something right before him. It's kind of dangling out there like a carrot that Jesus had his eyes set on. It was that, it was for that joy that was right there that he endured the pain of the cross. What has motivated men of God and women of God throughout the millennia is catching onto a vision of something great and not letting go of it and not losing hope in it. You notice that in each of the, I only gave you three examples, I can give you more. But you notice that every motivating vision here, did you notice that it includes the salvation of others? Every single one of them. What motivated each one of these men was the desire to honor and worship God by giving every bit of themselves to the goal of bringing others into the presence of God. Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations, right? I will be God to you and your people. I will be your God, you will be my people. Countless descendants, I will be your God too. Moses, after you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will all worship me together on this mountain. You will save a people out of Egypt, and you will all worship me together. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What did the cross accomplish? What was on the other side of that cross? It was us. His church, his bride secured, saved, atoned for, the sin debt paid, the plan of God fulfilled. Without the cross, there is no hope for you. Without him dying in your place, there is no hope for you. For the joy that was set before him, for the vision that God gave him of being reunited with his bride, the bride that he gave his life for, he endured the cross. He knew that what was right on the other side was, worth, was something worth giving everything for. So what is our vision? I believe that God has given us a vision, and I believe that he gave that vision to the apostle John. He's called the beloved um, apostle. On the, when he was on the island of Patmos, John recorded that vision for us in the book of Revelation. And here's what it says. It says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lamb. That's a vision of what could be. It could, it could be right here. A group of people gathered together from multiple backgrounds, multiple nations, multiple languages, crying out, worshiping, clothed in the white robes, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that are honoring our Lord and our Savior, saying salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. That could be us. That will be you one day. If you trust in Jesus, this is a vision of what could be. Now let's have the conviction that it should be. Jesus died to give you new life that flourishes in the work of fulfilling the Great Commission. So let's live in the pursuit of making that vision a reality. Because, and when you engage in this mission, do so with all your might. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you, if you 
haven't done so, you need to go and just read that whole chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Phenomenal, mind-blowing. I, I go back to, I read it probably once or twice a week. It's, it's an incredible chapter. In that chapter, it talks about the resurrection, the future resurrection that we will all experience. And Paul links it to Christ's resurrection. He says, listen to this, if Christ is not raised from the dead, your faith is in vain. Your preaching, my preaching, what I'm doing right now is pointless. It's in vain. You are still dead in your sins. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for today you live, tomorrow you die. If Christ is not raised from the dead, we can burn down the church. We can throw away these Bibles. We don't have to gather together like this. This is silly. If sin killed Jesus, then it will kill you too. And if it kept him dead, then it will keep you dead too. There is no hope for you without the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, there is no hope. But what is our hope? Christ has been raised from the dead. And we believe that like him, we too will one day be raised from the dead. And so Paul works out this resurrection theme throughout this chapter. And at the very end, the practical application is one verse. There's like a whole chapter of just all this theory and and doctrine about about the resurrection. And then one verse at the very end of application. He says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters... Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because of the resurrection, you know that your labor is not in vain. You know that what you are giving yourself to is not going to be pointless. It's not going to be purposeless. Paul preaches this because of the resurrection, the hope that we have that this world is not all there is. And there is coming a day when we will be ushered into heaven to be with the Lord forever. And for those who have devoted themselves to this cause, they will be honored and they will be rewarded based upon what they've done. It's what happened to Jesus Christ. He said, for this reason, this is back into Philippians 2. Remember, he emptied himself, took on the form of servant, humbled himself to the point of death, for death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God has highly exalted him because he humbled himself, because he gave himself for others. God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall be in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is now reigning and ruling from heaven right now, proving the truth that he taught while on earth, that those who exalt themselves, they will be humbled, but those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. He promises the same thing to us too if we give ourselves to this. Jesus says, to him who overcomes. That is, if you overcome the luring and the temptation of this world to live for yourself rather than God. Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. If you humble yourself, you will be exalted. The place and the position of esteem and status due to Christ will be shared with you. It's a mystery, I know. We're so undeserving. Why would Jesus ever grant me to sit with him on his throne? I don't overcome. I fail every single day. as we will sing in a moment 
And as we have sung in this church many times, what we come back to is we say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. If you want significance, give yourself to this. If you want your life to matter, if you want meaning, give yourself to this. Begin today. Repent of your sin. Listen, Romans 14 says that for this reason Jesus lived and died that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. In Philippians 2 that we just read, every knee will bow in heaven. So everybody who is saved that's in heaven, everybody on earth at his coming, and everybody under the earth, everybody who has rejected him, who has gone to hell, every tongue will confess, whether you believe in him or not, that he is Lord. Because Jesus is your king, whether you believe in him or not. Jesus is your Lord, whether you have surrendered yourself to him or not. That is the reality. And so the cry of the sinner is not, I receive you, Jesus. That's not what it is. It is a plea, God, would you receive me? He's already king. He's already Lord. Cry out to him. Believe in him. Trust in him. Repent. Turn from your sin. Give yourself to him. To the mission that Jesus died for you to participate in. You can do this. Christ died for this. You were made for this. So in a moment, together as a body, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. Um, the scripture mentions that there is a right way to take this and there is a wrong way to take this. And there's some pretty disturbing uh, words that are said for those who do this wrongly. It says, for those who do not consider themselves rightly, who do not do enough introspection and are not honest with themselves, who are harboring sin that they've, that they've not repented of, who are not taking this in a worthy manner, what they are doing is, they, Paul says, they are eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. And he says that because some of you are doing this wrongly, some of you have gotten sick, and some of you have even died. This is not merely symbolic. This is not some rote ritual that we participate in. This does something to you. What you are doing when you take of this bread and when you take of this cup is you are saying, I'm taking Jesus Christ's body and I'm taking Jesus Christ's blood into myself. And if you have not surrendered to him as Lord, you are trampling on the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. But if you have given yourself to him, then what you are doing in this moment is you are giving yourself to something so much greater than yourself. You're inviting into you something so much greater than you. You are entering into a purpose, renewing your commitment to someone who is higher, someone who is greater, someone who is stronger, someone who is more worthy of all the glory than you are. That's what we're about to do. So I would encourage you, as we do this, Ushers, you can go ahead and come on up and, and, and prepare to do this. Think long and hard about your heart. Is it a selfish heart? Are you living for yourself? Are you in love with the things of this world? 
If there is anything that is preventing, that, that, is, that is making you say yes to those questions, please let this pass. If you're not willing and ready to do business with God, please let this pass. For your sake, let this pass. But if today you've repented, if today you've been convicted, if today you have been encouraged to step into this again, to renew your faith once more in the Great Commission, to step into the purpose that God has called you to do something greater than yourself, then I invite you, gladly join with us in this. Let's pray. Father, we stand before you now, humbled at what you have called us to do. We are amazed that you would choose people like us to be involved in something so grand and so amazing. God, I pray for those of us that have been convicted that you would grant us repentance, that it would come from you, that it wouldn't come just in word only, but in deed as well, that we would cast off these sins that keep us from you, that we would set aside selfish ambitions, that we would commit ourselves again to the cause of Jesus Christ and his gospel and the Great Commission. God, for, for those of us that have been trying, that God, we have been sincerely trying to do this. I know that there are many in this room that have. God, would you encourage us? Would you show us, give us a, a glimpse again of what it is that we are striving for so that we won't grow weary in doing good, so that we won't grow faint-hearted. I pray, God, that you would encourage every person here who is sincerely trying to be a part of this and to do what you have called us to do. God, we thank you for the gift of communion and the gift of the Lord's Supper, what it is that you do in our hearts in this moment. We pray, we ask for you now to come and to do this work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.